Welcome to the New Kind of Man podcast. This is episode 47. In this episode, I talk to Matt Newman, and he is the author of a book called Starting at the Finish Line. Starting at the Finish Line is Matt's story about going into having brain cancer and then coming out of brain cancer and then talking about what his life is like now. So the premise of the book is really fantastic, and we really drill down on uh, what does it mean to start at the finish line? What does it mean to live your life as if it's going to be your last day? So he is uh, an incredible man who has been on a wild ride. He himself is a multiple TEDx speaker. He, of course, is an author, and he is a very successful financial advisor. That's actually his job. And now he has the opportunity of speaking and encouraging people all over the world. So uh, he was an interesting guy to have a conversation with and very insightful and very encouraging. So I know that you are going to get a lot out of this podcast. Well, this podcast is brought to you by the New Man Crew. The New Man Crew is a private Facebook group that is attached to New Kind of Man and A New Kind of Man on Instagram. And this private Facebook group is a group where we talk about growth in the four main pillars of the work, and that's spiritual, relational, intellectual, and physical. So we talk about these things, and I'm trying to build up this community, and I need solid men like you who are listening to join this community to share, to open up, to give tips on uh, on working out tips or just books you're reading or just encouragement for a guy who may be in a spiritual slump or a relational slump. So this is a community called the New Man Crew. You can look in the show notes to see how you can join the New Man Crew. Also, this podcast is brought to you by the Live Free app. The Live Free app is something I talk about with regularity. It is attached to I'm attached to the Live Free app and I have a community on there called A New Kind of Man. And Carl and his team do a fantastic job of helping men to recover from porn addiction. Now, I want to tell you this community is not weird. There's, uh, it's not, it's not what you, maybe you would think of with a, a Christian men's environment talking about porn. This is outstanding. These are guys who are getting real and who are really talking about and needing uh, support and also giving support to one another so they can live free from the addiction of pornography. And in it. Uh, I talk about and I share different workouts of the day that I that I do, and also uh, scripture that I may run across, or a quote, or this podcast has been shared on there. Some great conversations, also some great encouragement. Uh, I'm finding in this environment on the Live Free app, and you can go in the show notes and find that as well. Now, without further ado, I will get into my conversation with Matt Newman and see how we can start. At the finish line. Well, this is the New Kind of Man podcast, and today we have on Matt Newman, and he wrote a book, Starting at the Finish Line, and it is, it is his story in and through in the recovery of brain cancer. So that is an amazing story, and the book was amazing also. Welcome to the show, Matt. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here, and I was really looking forward to having this conversation, we'll call it. Yeah, I, I have been too, and I loved I love the book. I love the realness and rawness of it. I, I myself haven't been touched by cancer that close. Everybody's touched by cancer, but just not that close. And uh, and really, it really opened my eyes to a lot of things and your journey through it. And I was really kind of curious as we we're talking about this, you know, before we started recording, 
you could have done a lot of things. You could have just kind of walked on, hit the gong, and we'll talk about the gong later. Like you could have done that and just kind of checked out and been like, all right, fine, I'm going to live my life now. But you chose to write a book and you have TED Talks and you have, you're speaking all over the world now uh, through the lens of, of what happened. What would inspire you to write the book and to do all this speaking? It's a great question. And it's funny. I, I was never a writer. What we often find is that there's a lot of seeds that are, that are, that are put into us at young ages. Mm. My mother was a school teacher. She taught English as a second language up in Northern New Jersey. My father was a financial advisor. There was things that were planted inside of me that didn't make sense till they bloomed later in life. And a lot of us have that. We're given these lessons that they, they just don't make sense until at some point there's a clarity, there's an understanding. And I thank my mom a lot for the writing aspect of it. Mm. So what would happen is, as I started to go through my journey, which I know we'll talk about, I would have this new lens on life this new understanding and appreciation of living in the moment, living in the now, understanding deeply how fragile things are at a young age of 39 years old. Mm -hmm. And what happened was for all my optimism, for all my belief, for all my thankfulness on understanding the reality of life, you're pushing stuff down into your belly mm -hmm. and you're pushing anxiety, fear. You get told you have a grade three astrocytoma, a brain tumor that's probably going to come back at some point. It's not all rainbows and unicorns, but I, even though I had this great perspective, there's things I was trying to avoid. The reality is if they don't find an outlet, they're going to combust at some point. Mm. And my outlet became writing. Well, that's amazing. And you know, it, it's interesting. A couple of things you said for one, one thing kind of funny that you said, I'll just mention that before we get all into the heavy stuff. Um, you said that your mother taught English as a second language in New Jersey, which is ironic because isn't English the second language in New Jersey? <laughs> it's, you know, that's a very fair point you say right there. <laughs> and it, it's funny. We, and I know we were talking about this before, but you know, where I grew up in Northern New Jersey, probably about 20 miles outside New York city in Parsippany. Mm. I look at it as a gift much later in life. And it was a gift because it was such a melting pot mm. of cultures, races, religions. None of that mattered to us. We all bled the same color of red. Right. And as I moved on in life and I moved to other areas or whatnot, I was given this gift of you are who you are. Mm. That's it. And I'm unbelievably thankful for that, honestly, mm. because it's the lesson I teach my children. We all bleed the same color red. Nothing else matters. You're a good person or you're not. Yeah. Yeah. You're known by your, the conduct of your character, not the color of your skin. I think that was exactly. Luther King Jr. That's a, a profound quote and really profound statement. So jumping back into your story, you know, talking uh, about cancer and then going through and writing your book, you know, when you're giving your mom, uh, you know, the right accolades just to, she put some seed in you, right. To write and to do all that. I thought that was really incredible. And what would inspire you? Now, you said that it was almost in the book, I think you may have used these terms specifically, that you were thankful for cancer. It may not be, you may not have used the word thankful, but, and I think you actually did use the word thankful, but you alluded to it, that you're thankful for what cancer brought you after the fact. Could you talk about that? Yeah, I'm the, I get it all the time. I've learned this new perspective on life, like I was under, like I was talking about. I understand the basics of planning, which we'll go over as well too. I understand that you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. What happened yesterday isn't overly important. Mm -hmm. It's what's happening right in that moment. The lessons you're giving your children, your friends, your loved ones. It's getting encapsulized in that given opportunity that you have right in front of you at the moment, which we all get swept up on. 
We all stop thinking about that until something, some type of life-altering event happens that makes us realize how fortunate we are to be in that situation that we're in. And for many of us, there's nothing we could do about it. Diseases, cancer, whether it's a, some type of event that happens, a car accident, depression, the reality is that could take us away where it may take us away physically, but we define the legacy that we leave and we'll always be around spiritually. I didn't entirely believe in that before I got sick, but what it gave me was this new understanding of the legacy that we leave is what we will truly be remembered for. Mm. And I own that. Cancer doesn't own that. That's up to me. If I allow the disease to take that over, that's on my shoulders right there. Mm -hmm. And everything that I do will be what my children remember, what the legacy is defined as, like I was saying earlier. And what you start to have this better understanding of is how quickly things can change. And we can liken that to this pandemic. We can liken it to, you know, unexpected deaths or diseases that happen in people's lives. Mm -hmm. But the more that you're able to be thankful for the moment that you're in, you'll be remembered much differently than you were for the person who was always on their phone and not paying attention to the moment. Wow. That's powerful. So what would you say is, uh, is, what does it mean to start at the finish line? What does it mean to you? Sure. So when I started, when I graduated college, I graduated from the University of Delaware in 1996. And I, my father, I told you, was an advisor, my mom, a teacher. And I remember we're having this beautiful graduation ceremony. Maya Angelou was giving her commencement speech. Wow. My father walks onto the football field and I'm wearing this great blue cap and gown. And my dad looks at me and he gives me that not bad, buddy. You know, graduate. I'm like, dad, the king has arrived, man. Like, not bad, right? <laughs> he goes, what do you think you want to do now? I go, that's easy, dad. I'm going to join your firm. I'm going to become a financial advisor. And my parents, my dad's from the Bronx. And my dad's thick Bronx accent. He looked at me and he goes, and I'll clean my language up. There's no bleeping way you're joining my firm. And man, I was pissed. I was at every picture of me at graduation. It's like, jerk off right here. <laughs> What my dad was doing is he was giving me one of the greatest lessons in life. He was saying, there's no free lunches. Yeah. Go earn it. Find your craft. Find something. You go find something that fits you, a passion that you have, something you can love. We'll talk in a few years. Mm. So what I did is I wanted to be in financial services like my father was. I understood the value of planning, having a plan in place prior to the negative. Again, seeds that were planted in me that didn't make sense at that point because I didn't get it too much. So I became what's called a wholesaler. What happens, what a wholesaler basically is, is financial services companies that manufacture mutual funds, 401ks, annuities, whatever it's going to be. We get all the same licenses as financial advisors. So we're technically advisors. And then we go see financial planners, advisors, RIAs, and we try to show them why when they're doing their planning, they should use our products in the situations that are going to be for clients. And it was a passion that I took. And when I started my career, I remember my father sitting down with me. He said, I'm going to give you three ideas. I said, yeah. It was idea number one. If you don't believe in the product, don't sell it. Mm. Lose the battle to win the war. If you were a family member wouldn't own it, don't do that. That will get you ingratiated with your clients and show true respect. Mm. Okay. Number two, just be honest with people. At the end of the day, if you don't, it will catch up with you. Always be honest, have belief, and even though mistakes are made, they'll know you're doing it the right way and you're doing it for the right reasons and you get forgiven for things. Mm -hmm. He goes, number three, you got a soccer scholarship to college. I go, yeah, he goes, take that work ethic. 
Mm. You put those three things together, you could be pretty good at this. And you know, you're 22, 23. I'm like, all right, that'll do that. You know, sounds good. And what I would, means, I'll do it. <laughs> yeah. And what I would, so I started my craft and I would say the same things over and over. The job of the financial advisor is to be there when things are bad, mm. is to give people good news at the deepest and darkest of times, to have a plan in place prior to the negative. The majority of people want what they can't get. They want life insurance after they get sick. They want long-term care when they're taking someone to a long-term care facility. They want a financial plan after they lose 30% in the market. If we can help people have a plan in place prior to the negative, they will have independence and dignity when they need it the most. And let me make my point clear on this. This has nothing to do with investments, mutual funds, performance. This is the basics that frankly, and I will speak freely here, shame on the US education system for not educating people on this. Mm. We graduate high school, some go into the workforce, some go to college. After college, some go into grad school, some enter the workforce, some go to medical school, law school. We teach them how to be contributors to society. Why don't we teach them what an employee benefit is? Why don't we teach them the value of having medical insurance? Nothing anybody's selling. If you want real help, go see a great financial advisor. They'll help you. But many of us, you don't have money at that point, but you want to check the right things. The person who gets married at a young age, maybe they didn't insure their spouse and God forbid something bad happens. Mm-hmm. They're financially broke at that point. Shame on us for not giving people some education on that. I was born into this business. Mm. These were starting to bloom in me. It started to make sense that why would I not do that? God forbid something happened. Look, look at the look at the, the defining legacy I could leave of regret and resentment and negativity. So what happened is as I started to build this more and more, my career started to, to, to blossom. And in 2001, I was the number one person in my company. And in 2003, I was the number one person in my industry. And I remember my father coming to me in 2003 going, not bad kid, right? I'm like, hanging in there, right? Dad, doing pretty good. He goes, I think we should talk about you joining my firm. I said, you can't afford me any longer, Dad. That ain't (laughs) gonna happen. But I found my craft. I found Mm. my way of financial advising just from a different perspective. Mm. And it was something I took to, and it made sense of all the lessons I learned at a younger age that now made sense to me. Mm. So the reason that I'm sharing that little bit with you as my career started to, to blossom was, When you go through these difficult times, when you take on these challenges, the less negativity you have on the shoulders, the further you can battle, you can fight, you can do the things you need to do. And I learned that much later on in my story. Yeah, that that's that was really good. I I really appreciated you said like one line, and you said this a couple times in the book as well. You said uh, really the the role and and the wording may be off here, so correct me if this is wrong, but I think I'll carry the general idea that you said that basically the goal or the, the role of a financial advisor is to basically be able to bring them good news on their worst day. That's a hundred percent correct. Good news on a bad day. Yeah. And in, to me, that's really what this book can do as well. You know, it's, it's a very similar thing, obviously switching from the financial world into now somebody who's battling with cancer or, you know, dealing with all the fear and everything that goes into that diagnosis. But to me, your book would bring that that resilience and that fight and that fire. I think that somebody needs on their worst day. You hear the the you know you hear the diagnosis that I have cancer and and everybody thinks cancer and death. I mean these, yeah, those two things are just used synonymous. And yet, if your book was handed somebody in that situation, I know that they'd read it and be like, you know what, I've got more in me. 
Not only more in you, and I'll tell you, it's interesting. So as I went through my experience, my first experience with cancer, to just kind of give a perspective on it, it happened when I was 15 years old. My grandmother, grandma, my grandma Harry was diagnosed with cancer. I, I wasn't old enough to understand it or digest it. I remember one day she was grandma Harriet. The next day she was wearing a cancer turban and the next day she was gone. What I remember is what it did to my mom. My mom and grandmother spoke every single day on the phone. Every weekend, they were at our house in Parsippany, New Jersey. We were at their house in Fairlawn, New Jersey. And I saw my mom become a different person. I saw her cry every day. I saw her, her have this angst, anxiety. She was different. She wasn't the same. And I wish I could have been there for her. I wish I could have hugged her. More. I just didn't get it. I'm 15 years old. But what it did is it built up this hate and anger for me when it came to cancer. Yeah. What's interesting is my next real experience with cancer happened to my father-in-law. And I got married in 2006 to my wife, Rebecca. And we started our family about nine months later. And I remember when we were starting our family, my father sat down with me. He goes, what do you say every day for a living? I go, our job is to be there when things are bad. Our job is to give people good news. Our job is to plan it prior to the negative and give some semblance of positivity when people need it. Mm-hmm. He goes, do you practice what you preach? I go, absolutely, I I do. He goes, okay, so you're about to be a dad. Do you have a will? I'm like, well, dad, I just did the tough mutter the other day. I'm like, beast mode, man. I mean, he goes, do you have your power of attorney? Here's what people don't understand. They hear the term financial planning, they think wealth. This means nothing. I can go on legal Zoom and do these things for $19. They mean nothing. But what a power of attorney is going to do is if I become incapacitated, it's going to allow the people I want to make the proper decisions going forward. The will is going to pass things on to people the way I want it to be. To not do that is, frankly, just unacceptable because now you're going to cause problems and probate and all these other things, which now what's your legacy? Is I can't believe you didn't do this. I can't believe they didn't have that. And it creates negativity. He goes, so you don't do what you say. Wow. And Larry told you that? The, this was actually my father. Oh, you're My dad. father-in-law, okay. Larry, I'll give you this and say. So I went and did everything that I, that I needed to do. It took two weeks to do. And I was taking on more responsibility. I actually had an obligation to do this. Unfortunately, we're just not educated in this. Mm-hmm. In 2010, my father-in-law, Larry, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. He was 60 years old. And my wife and my father-in-law were just like my mom and my grandmother. We had two children under three years old. My wife is pregnant with her third child. She would take him down for his Whipple procedure at the University of Pennsylvania Hospital, which is about 40 minutes from us. After that, he went through chemo and radiation and she would drive him back and forth every day. I learned what strength is. Mm. I learned what realness is. I would see her doing what she needed to do, take care of her children, take care of me, and be there for her dad. And it was an honor and inspirational to be a part of it. I'm going to answer the question you gave me in a second here. Mm-hmm. I remember sitting down with Larry. Pancreatic cancer usually got about six months and you're gone. And he told me he had two goals. His two goals were one, to see all three of his grandkids born. Number two was to have them all old enough to have real memories of him. He was a warrior. He never bitched. He never complained. He mm-hmm. did what he needed to do to try and carry out these two goals of his. Mm-hmm. And I was so honored to be a, be around this and watch this. This is what love really is. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, when people say, are you glad you had cancer? No, I'm not glad I had cancer. I wish it never happened. But what I learned watching Larry was the way to hold myself. Mm. And after I was diagnosed, I was able to see the way a warrior acts, see the way to have dignity, see the way to show people and define yourself going forward. And what it taught me was, this is my journey. Cancer's just riding shotgun. Mm. And to, to make that easier for, for the audience to understand, he's going through this cancer and cancer is like a roller coaster. It goes up, it goes down. It doesn't care about your plans. It doesn't care about your love. It doesn't care about what your goals are. It's going to do what it wants, when it wants, and it's evil. Mm-hmm. And in 2013, I got in a car accident on a miserable snowy day in Bridgewater, New Jersey. There's fender benders all over the side of the road. And I'm literally driving in a suit and tie on the way to a client going, I ain't dealing with this today, man. <laughs> I start doing like 20 miles per hour and I pull up to a traffic light, flying to the car in front, in front of me, car gets totaled, flips into the, to the, to the median, airbag goes off and I'm holding on to that wheel thinking all that working out I do is for this. I get out of the car with that scratch on my body mm-hmm. and the police come running over like, dude, you got to get to the hospital right now. I'm like, no, man, I'm beast mode. Like I said, I'm, I'm cool. And I call my wife. I go, honey, she's with my father-in-law, Larry, who's at chemotherapy as his roller coaster is going. Mm. And she goes, you need to go to the hospital. I'm like, no, nah, I'm, I'm okay. She goes, don't forget about our friend, Karen Mancini. This woman, this friend of ours, Karen, lives in, was in a town called Bluebell, Pennsylvania. And she's at a traffic lane, gets T-boned. Please come up there and like, you, you should go to the hospital and get checked out. Three hours later, the doctors come in and go, we want you to send a thank you note and flowers to the person that hit you. Mm. We found a brain aneurysm in you. You'd be dead sometime tonight. Wow. Took a deep breath, thought about my kids, thought about my wife. And like a type A personality, I rented a car and went on my way. (laughs) (laughs) That night I get home and my head is killing me. But let me make this clear. It's not about me. I got three beautiful little children now. I got my father-in-law sitting on the couch going through chemotherapy. Mm. My wife suffers from something called chronic migraines. She gets them some, some, some weeks every day. So I'm sitting there going, oh, man, my freaking head is killing me. She goes, did you go to the hospital? I go, no. Try getting chronic migraines. I want to hear about it. Can't blame her for that. Over the next two weeks, it got worse and worse every day. And my father-in-law, Larry, was a big Phillies fan. I'm a big Yankees fan. And my goal was to make him a Yankees fan before he left us physically because he would never leave us spiritually. And we'd sit on the couch, be watching the Yankee game. I'd fall asleep from 8.30 to 10, and I'd wake up in just massive pain. Two weeks into it, I lost all ability to sleep. I'd, I couldn't go back to bed now. I would just be walking around, and it just got worse and worse and worse. But it, but it wasn't about me. It was about the kids. It was about Larry. It was about appreciating the moment, living in the now, understanding that this wasn't going to be around forever for us. And I'm giving a speech in this town called Bridgewater, New Jersey, like I mentioned earlier, maybe 150 people. And I speak professionally. So this is easy. I'm bouncing through things, going through it. And halfway through the speech, I felt a hot flash hit me in the face, just like a, a pregnant woman would get. And when that hot flash hit me, I didn't know where I was. I didn't know what was going on. And slur and gurgle poured out of my mouth. Mm. I vividly remember seeing myself standing outside my body going, you're having a stroke. You're having, you're having a stroke. It felt like an eternity. Reality was like five to six seconds. Most people didn't catch on. I kind of got myself together. I'm like, all right, come on. Let's bounce back into this. Let's go. I was scared out of my mind. Mm. 
And over the next three weeks, I had about nine more of those. I had one when I was training for a race, one when I was driving, another one when I was speaking. And they kept, and once I got to like eight, nine, 10, I'm like, something's wrong. Like hey, Matt, now, can I stop like, you for a second? Yeah, of course. You're a slow learner. <laughs> oh, I hear this all. Why didn't you go more to the doctor? Yeah. Why didn't you? I actually did go to the doctor. And I, and I have no anger or animosity in any way. Twice I went to the doctor and they told me it was sinus infections. Mm, and wow. I get a lot of people go, did it make you mad? I go, 99% of people that probably went in with what I had, it was a sinus infection. Yeah. And they put me on all this medication. I take, here's what's interesting. I take nothing. I don't put Advil in my body unless I really need to. Mm -hmm. So when they're trying to make this cocktail for me of kicking it out, I'm like, whoa, 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 beast mode, man, not going to happen. I'm not doing that. Mm -hmm. But it was so bad that I did. I took it for one day and I woke up like in a dream world. I was like, no, no, that's, that, that's just not for me. I don't do that. And you're right. You know, there's, I hear that all the time. Like, what, what took you so long? That was in the begin, like the end of January, beginning of February, it all started. On May 14th, I'm giving a speech in my hometown of Parsippany, New Jersey. And as I go to make a point for the 11th time, I see her here, I feel a hot flash hit me. Mm -hmm. Here's the difference, Chuck. I knew what to do. I knew to turn my back and pretend I'm pointing to a PowerPoint to get this five seconds by me. Snoring gurgles pouring out of my mouth. I don't, I don't know where I am, but I knew there would be an end. That was the moment I decided I'm going to the hospital right now. Mm. So I finished the presentation, got in my car, called my wife. She was shopping at a place called the King of Prussia Mall, taking a little break from what was going on with my father-in-law through his chemotherapy. And I had about an hour and a half drive. We're going to a place called uh, Capital Health in Hopewell, New Jersey. On my drive, I'll never forget this. Okay, good. They're going to give me medicine. They're going to figure it out. I don't know. Maybe I'm going to die. I, I, my head was just in spit, like it, it, in, all over the place. I get to the parking lot and I meet her there. We hold hands. We walk in. And they said, we're going to give you a CAT scan. I'm like, good, CAT scan. Yeah, that's it's like an x-ray. Cool. So they give me a CAT scan, and about three hours later, they walk in. They go, "Mr. Newman, we have the problem. We know the problem." I'm like, "Yeah, let's diagnose, fix. Let's do what we got to do." You have a lesion on the left frontal lobe of your brain. Now, to me and probably most people, a lesion is a cut or a bruise. Right. To make a quick point here, I don't care whether it's finance, medical, a mechanic. We often speak in vernaculars that the other people don't understand. Mm. My first thought, I was. I banged my head in that car accident. Oh, I, I got a bruise. Okay, this makes mm -hmm. sense. They go, it's causing massive pain. I'm like, dude, you don't want half of it. It's causing you not to sleep. I'm like, yes. You go, Mr. Newman, you're not having strokes. You're having seizures in the left frontal lobe of your brain. And as tough as that sounds to hear, I was actually like, yeah, fine. Okay, that's it, man. What do we got to do? You got to get an MRI, MRI, blah, blah, blah. So I go in the MRI tube countless times. Seven hours later at three in the morning, they, gotta, you go, they go, you got to go one more time because now we have to put something called contrast in you. My wife looks at me. She goes, um, I'm going to go home. I got to make lunch for the three kids who are all in you know, pre-kindergarten, kindergarten, and nursery school. Mm. And I got to get a ride for my dad down for chemotherapy. I go, listen, I'm going to be in the tube for like an hour. Take your time, whatever. So they come with a wheelchair to come get me. And I said, I've been in wheelchairs nonstop. I could, I could walk to this thing. They're like, Mr. Newman, liability. Got to get in the wheelchair. So I get in the wheelchair. 
And uh, the nurse comes up behind me. She goes, all right, Mr. Newman, MRI, MRI. We need to see how big your brain tumor is. I go, it's a lesion. And that was the moment at 39, I was diagnosed with cancer. And I realized everything changed at that given moment. So to answer the question you asked me before, I took a very long-winded approach because I wanted to make sure everybody understood Mm -hmm. how I got to that point. I'm not thankful that I had cancer. If I had to do it again, I wish I could never have it. But from that moment going forward, there's two ways I could have looked at this. Woe is me. This sucks. Or this is my journey and I own it. What could I take from this? And the lessons that I took, I will never give back. And that was the clarity that was gifted to me of ways that I could take something from this disease and not allow it to take from me. Because if I let it take from me, that's on my shoulders. Mm -hmm. I'm allowing that to happen. So not thankful I had it, but thankful for everything I took from it. That makes sense. I think that's a whole mindset shift too. I mean, not everybody who listens to this, you know, is going to get brain cancer or cancer, but everybody's going to have an adversity of some sort. Everybody's going to go through something. Somebody, they're going to lose a loved one. They're going to lose a job. They're going to get hurt. They're going to have some sort of financial setback. And there's going to be something that causes a man to stop and stop and evaluate his position. And for you, it was brain cancer for you to stop and evaluate your, your position And I think that, you know, what you're saying here is so valuable for the men because the men who's going to be facing one of these things, and we all do, we we have big issues and we have small issues. And every one of those is an opportunity for us to stop, learn what it is we're supposed to learn, walk through it. I mean, oftentimes when it comes to those things, we can't run away from it. We have to face it. So we may as well face it and then overcome it and then learn something and then put something in our, in our toolbox, so to speak that would better the rest of our lives. What sorts of things, oh, go ahead. No, 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 I, I agree with your point. What's interesting though, is that we all have something inside us we don't know is there. And I use this point a lot. I remember after I went through that and they put me in the MRI tube and I was there for like an hour and a half, my head spinning and they brought me back and they put me in a hospital bed and they plugged me into 30 machines. Hmm. And I just started to cry. Hmm. And I started, the reality is, and you said, if you, you have brain cancer, you're gonna die. And I'm sitting there at 39 years old, I'm crying. And I'm thinking, I I must have done something to cause this. I think I'm a good dad. I think I'm a good mom. And for all those listening, strength is not how big your arms are. Mm -hmm. Strength is not how much you bench press. Strength is something that's located deep down in our bellies. And that, as I said, those deepest and darkest of times, we can find it, we can grab it, we can own it. I didn't know it existed, but I saw it, I grabbed it, And I started cursing my brains out. Mm. And the nurses came running in who to this day still tell this story. They go, oh my God, are you okay? And I was like, I'm fine. Mm. That was my pity party, Chuck. That was, if I was going down, I was going down swinging. I I didn't know I had this in me. I didn't know that strength was available. But when you go through these times, if you choose not to take it, that's on you. Because it's there for all of us. And I learned seeing people, you know, going through chemo and radiation, emaciated, passing on. Oh, I learned what strength was very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. And I remember my wife walking in with the doctor that morning. Her husband's got brain cancer. Her dad's dying of pancreatic cancer. She's got three kids under five. And she walks in rubbing her eyes. And the surgeon looks at me and goes, let me tell you what we're going to do. I go, let me tell you what you're going to do. You're going to get this crap out of my head and I'll take care of the rest. He goes, don't move. 
You're going to get surgery on Friday. It's Wednesday. We're going to do a full craniotomy. We're going to cut half your head off. We're going to pull your jaw back. We're going to take the tumor out. We won't know for about 10 days the severity of it. But I want you to read something. And he brought me a study from the American Medical Association. And what it did is it referenced something called a downward spiral. Let me explain what that is. A downward spiral is imagine we know the couple that's been married for 50 years. Great couple. Husband gets cancer. Wife's healthy as a horse. Husband passes away. You know what we a lot of times hear happens six months later? Yep. The wife dies. Mm -hmm. Once you fall into that spiral of regret, resentment, negativity, the odds of getting out of it are low. All this surgeon did is pour gasoline on my fire. I was like, oh, well, well that's not going to happen to me. Let, let's go. And my wife turns to me. She says, our parents are on the way over. First of all, her dad, he's not my father-in-law. He's my cancer partner. I now realize things happen for a reason. I stopped believing in irony at that given moment. Mm -hmm. He was there to show me how to act, how to fight, how to have dignity, how to be a warrior. When him and my mother-in-law walked in, he didn't say a word to me. He nodded his head, I nodded my head. We didn't have to talk. It was there. It was real. It was pure. But what's interesting is before they got there, I said to my wife, I go, give me the iPad for a second. She goes, yeah, yeah. Do you, do you want to watch a movie? They'll be here in like 20 minutes. I go, just give me the iPad. That was the moment I realized, I don't know where this is going to go. So I have to make sure everything I have is taken care of. Mm -hmm. Check the first thing I pulled up is my will. Mm -hmm. Box checked. I pulled up my power of attorney. If I become incapacitated, they're doing something on my brain. I might not be able to speak of it. Box checked. Mm -hmm. I pulled up my mortgages. I pulled up my investments. I pulled up all the basic stuff. And at that given moment, I realized every speech I'd given for the last 18, 19 years was about me. I was the shoemaker's kids had shoes. I was able to focus on the fight at hand. Could you imagine if I'm sitting there going, I didn't do my insurance. I didn't do, oh my God, oh my. Downward spiral. Mm -hmm. Instead I went box, box, box. What's next? What do you want to do? What, you gonna cut it all open? Cool, let's go do this. Let's go get it on. Mm -hmm. I remember my, my dad walking in behind my in-laws and my mom and dad he gives me the same thing he gave me at Delaware. Hey bud, how you doing? I saw the fear. I saw the anger. I saw the evilness. I saw that my son's going to die. Mm -hmm. I said, Dad, come sit on the bed with me for a minute. He goes, yeah. And I pulled out the iPad. And I did the same thing with him that I just did. And I took that iPad. I threw it on the bed. And I said, Dad, there's only one thing on my mind now. That's what I go. Getting better. I don't got to worry. God forbid I'm, I, this doesn't work out. I know there'll be grief, but my family will maintain their lifestyle. They will be able to have everything they've ever had and know that they were always taken care of and I thought of them first. Mm -hmm. And you can do whatever you want with this. Anybody in this audience, for the first time in my life, I saw my dad break down and cry. Mm -hmm. And he just started crying. He looked at me, he goes, you're going to beat this. I go, I know I'm going to beat it. And he goes, these are the types of stories you're going to share. This is what you're going to let people know. It's not the, the more planning you're able to do, the less, the less things you have to take on. And I realized at that given moment that if I hadn't done that, if those seeds hadn't bloomed, if I hadn't learned, if it wasn't my craft, what are the odds I have that type of optimism? Mm -hmm. Probably extremely low. And the fact to go back to what we said earlier, that we don't teach this in the education system, to me, to me it's shameful because I was gifted to be in this industry. Hmm. So what have you taken out of that? How has this in, in overcoming 
brain cancer, how, how has this shaped you as a dad and, and as a husband? I mean, what is life like now that was, that is different than before the diagnosis? So I've learned to live in the moment and appreciate the now. So I, I'll give you a good story on that. So I go through the surgery, everything. I'm a big believer in that wealth and health are extremely integrated together. I don't think we do that as a community enough to point out the two are extremely related. The better your health is, the less money you're going to, you know, the less money you're going to spend from your wealth on health. And so I had surgery on Friday. And I went home on Sunday. I was in the ICU for, I had a second head. I mean, I looked horrible. I told you I wouldn't know the severity of it for 10 days. Mm-hmm. So five days into it, my son, Luke, my oldest, at the time was five years old. And they're having a father-son picnic at his school, Montessori school, like a kindergarten. And my wife says, you look a mess. You don't have to go to this. But I learned about living in the now, understanding how fragile things could be, that there might not be this ever again. I said, I'll never miss this in a million years. And that morning she goes, I'm going to drop the kids at school. Do you want to come? I go, yeah. I have to put a hat on, cover everything. I mean, I'm a mess. And we leave. We take my kids to school. My wife takes my two boys, Luke and Jake. And I take my two-year-old daughter, Lola. I walk her over to her class. She takes her little pink jacket off. She puts it on the hook and goes, thank you for taking me to class, daddy. I love you. Mm. It's not about, every time I've done this, you know what I've been doing? Phone. I'm looking at my next appointment. I'm looking at business. Mm -hmm. What I'm really doing, I'm telling my daughter it's not about her. Mm. It's about other stuff. I, I, I'm seeing things differently. I'm being given a gift from this right now. I left my phone in the car that day. This was about low for 10 minutes. I couldn't drop her off and just make it about her. I come back home and I am euphoric for all the crap that I'm going through. I'm like, I, I get it. I get, So I go back that day to Luke's school to do the father-son picnic. And my wife's like, you do not have to be. You are, you are not looking good. I'm like, I'll never ever miss this. Life was different. I understood that there might not be another one. It wasn't about tomorrow. It wasn't about yet. It was about right now. And this is Luke's moment, not mine. So he, she takes me to school. He comes running to the front door and gives me a big hug and is like, I love you, daddy. Thank you for coming. And I am beaming of a smile. And what this lunch would be is you sit in the backyard with, with your son. You have a brown bag lunch for 30 minutes. And then you leave. My wife has to wait in the car outside because I can't drive. And we get back there and I'm just so happy. I'm so happy to have this moment that will always be in Luke's memory. And for some reason, I just started looking around at all the other dads. And I'm going to tell you what I saw. I saw every dad like this. Mm. And I went, oh my God, that was me. Mm. At that point, I had a Blackberry and an iPhone. Business was important. I had to go through cancer to learn that for 30 minutes. I couldn't make it about my son. Hang on. I'd also be teaching them. It's okay to not make it about the person's event and make it about you. Mm. And I'm so excited and I'm so happy and I'm never going to give these gifts back that I took from cancer. Mm. And I come home and I'm talking to my cancer partner, Larry, about I'm not going anywhere and I'm going to be better. And I think I was pretty good to begin with, but I'm going to be better. I get it now. And his phone rang. And they told him to get off the chemotherapy because there was no point any longer and his roller coaster was going down. 
Cancer didn't care about my lessons. It didn't care about this euphoric feeling. It didn't care about this connection that we were building in finding realness and purity in life. It does what it wants, mm-hmm. when it wants. But I looked at it a tad bit differently. I looked at it as Larry will always be with me no matter what happens. It just might be in a different fashion, if you will. Yeah, definitely in your memories and just as that example, it sounds like you've, you've taken a lot from his life and uh, even Absolutely. before the struggle, but then through the struggle and using it to to better yourself and really better your family. You know, being present as being present like that, like you're talking about, I mean, that's such a simple and yet profound example because we all can find ourselves buried in our phone. And I just want to say to any guy who's out there, like, it seems really simple and it seems like because of what Matt just said is like, yeah, okay. You know, what's, what's the big deal. That is an immense thing to, to be able to go through and say, you know what, I'm going to take this 30 minutes where nothing else matters other than this relationship with my child. Like that's incredible because many of us, we always have things to do. We always have things, whether it's inflated or whether it's actual, we always think we have something to do. And and it kind of just becomes an excuse for us to actually neglect those that are around us and to be present. I mean, how hard is it to sit for 30 minutes with, with your kid in, in that school setting? Now, as soon as you were telling that, I've, I've, I've done that stuff for years. My kids are older than that now, but I, I did that with my kids to where if there was a, you know, daddy daughter thing, I was there, daddy daughter dance. I was there every year that she would want to go everything at school. I was there. And the same thing with my son when he was younger. And I tried to make it a, a priority and to make it, I wasn't 100% at this. Don't, you know, don't get me wrong. But this is such a valuable lesson, I think, that guys miss. I agree. And, I, think, I think it's deeper than that, actually. Mm-hmm. I think that what we start to realize is we should have done something a certain way. And if someone else can give you the enlightenment to understand that you can make change, and I say this with the utmost respect to everybody out there, mm-hmm. change does two things. Change breeds complacency or change breeds opportunity. Yeah. Many of us hear about changing the ways that we're going through and we look as, ah, I don't want to do that. I'm comfortable here. That means you're not willing to alter. Mm-hmm. Change breeding opportunity means by you making some changes, whether it's family, whether it's business, whether it's you know schooling, I can go through a variety of different topics. You're opening up opportunities for yourself to be better in a variety of different fashions. We can't be stoic all the time. That being said, it shouldn't take a disease for that to happen. And to be fair, it it did for me not to be a better dad, to be a more present and prevalent dad. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It does. And for me, the other side of it was uh, one of the reasons why I was doing those things is honestly, because of trauma that I faced as a kid. So my parents were divorced. They divorced when I was four. And I've said it numerous times, but I, I, I felt like the handkerchief in the middle of a tug of war. And the tug of war wasn't to win over me. It was just to win over for, for them to win against the other one. And I just kind of felt like I was, you know, I was the prize, if you will, just kind of like consolation prize along the way. So for me, because of that, that difficulty and that strife growing up and really the absence of my, my dad was there, but he was absent emotionally. He was absent relationally. He was at work or busy or just, or didn't know how to, you know, to, to father me through difficult times because of that, he wasn't there. So I knew the only thing I did know, and I didn't know much of anything, but I knew that whenever I was growing up that I wanted to be a dad 
and I wanted to be engaged. I wanted to be present and I wanted to be uh, honestly, a lot of things that my dad wasn't. So it was because of trauma where it's an interesting tie into your story because it was a, your personal trauma that led you to some changes. And for me, it was trauma as well, but not trauma at my hand or because of a disease, right. but because of my upbringing that led me to change. And that, but you, you nailed the point there. Every one of us has been through something. Yes. And this is what I point out. People go, Matt, really, people love your book. They love your speeches, cancer. I go, no, that's not true at all. Everybody wants to know they're not alone on the path that they've been put on. Mm-hmm. And what we realize is inspiration comes from realness and purity. Mm-hmm. That's where it comes from. I could share my story and I talk to people who have been suicidal, been on depression, but, and you realize this is a much broader net than we ever realized. People mm-hmm. are sick of the shtick. They're sick of the canned speech. They're sick of the PowerPoint presentation. If here's six ways you can make your life better. Yes. They want honesty. They want something they relate to. And that all of a sudden became clear as day for me. And I'll give you, I'll give you a point on that. Mm-hmm. You mentioned before about you know writing the book and all that. And I know we're going back, but when I came home from surgery, I started writing. This is going to sound very interesting, but it became my catharsis. Mm. I started writing to share my perspective, my understanding of life and all this. I would send it to friends and family, these emails on how lucky I felt and how I was gifted with this new knowledge and I would never give it back. And I understood about the moment and the now and, and how fragile the realities of life could really be and how we have this Teflon feel to us that's not true. Mm. It was like vomit. I would get it out of my system. You're going to laugh when I say I never read one after I wrote it. I would get it out and it was like, oof, I feel better now. So what happened is I would start emailing that out. Matt, you got to get a cancer test. Writing or something like that. I never sat down to write. I never put a plan together. Something had to, Matt, we just found out some of the news might not be great. I I would start writing and I would send this out. Four years into it, I had 20,000 people following my emails. No social media, emails. Wow. Every day I would, hey, Matt, could you do me a favor? Could you put this person on? Matt, could you do me a favor? Could you put that person on? And I realized like cancer, depression, disease, mm-hmm. it's like buying a car. You buy a car, you leave the lot, you go, oh my God, look, I see the car everywhere. Wrong. The car was always there. You never noticed it till you had a That's direct right. connection to it. Mm-hmm. And it was boom, it was everywhere. So I was writing for me, but it was doing all these things for other people. So then I started to get emails from people all over the world and you're going, this is crazy. So four years into it, I decided I was going to write a book. 100% as a catharsis for me to continue to, for all this great stuff I was doing, business, speaking and all that. Listen, you're storing stuff down there. Don't forget, Matt, you have a test in three weeks. Hmm. There's a good chance. And by the way, every test I would go to, Matt, amazing, nothing there. Whatever you're doing, keep doing it. But don't forget, it'll probably grow back. Yeah, you, you, you get it right. So what would happen is I wrote this book called Starting at the Finish Line. My perspective, my understanding, reasons to plan, reality of life, all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. March 23rd, 2018, it comes out. There was no business plan. There was no ghostwriter. There was nothing. I call my mom up in Parsippany, New Jersey. I go, hey, ma, the book's coming out tonight. And I'm going to tell you word for word what she said to me. You know no one's ever going to buy one, right? I go, oh, God, no, are you kidding? <laughs> Who cares about me? I'm some jerk off. What do they care about? She goes, but you're going to put three copies in your safe. So when your kids are old enough, 
they'll be able to read what really happened. I go, Ma, I couldn't agree with you more. One week later, we're best number one bestseller in four different categories on Amazon. And here's the thing. My jaw hit the ground. There was no plan. There was no marketing. I wasn't even on social media. There was nothing. I wrote it because I needed to find the outlet to not combust so I can continue to feel good, to continue to keep these gifts, not give them away to somebody. And all of a sudden, I get a call from ESPN. They're like, we'd like to interview you. I have no problem sharing this with anybody listening. I thought it was my brother crank calling me. I'm like, yeah, right. <laughs> right, right there. Matt, it's ESPN New York. We want to get you on here. I'm like, are you serious? I did that. I started to do TED Talks. I started to speak as an occupation to people on the necessity of planning, the realness of my story, which we're, and I'm leaving a lot out of it too, as you know. But what's interesting is it became like starting a band. I mean, start a band. And you go to a little bar, you speak in front of a couple of people. I was like, that's so cool. You know, like eight people came. Then all of a sudden you're in a stadium and there's a couple thousand people there. And you're going, wow. And what it taught me was what connection really is. Yeah. Connection is not selling products to people. Connection is not some rehearsed shtick that you're providing. Connection is hitting people in the heartstrings directly and letting them know that there's other people on the path that they've been placed on. And we could speak in honesty and sincerity because we're not looking for anything here. We're just trying to drive our catharsis, which is connecting us in a way that can't be created and can't be made up. And I, all of a sudden, my lens has changed immediately. And I saw what people are really looking for. They want inspiration and they want it the real way and they want it from sincerity and honesty and that changed my entire perspective on life mm -hmm. yeah that you know we live in such a world that it you know marketing you got to market you got to market you think about the consumer think about the consumer and for you you're just like i'm just offloading this stuff and right 100 percent. i'm just gonna 100%. offload this because this is ultimately for you but but I, I love how it's been used and it is being used. Your story is being used and you know, speaking in front of thousands of people all over the world now. And basically, basically getting this message out to where you actually thought originally it was for you. But yet, I believe that God had a greater plan for that, that now that story has been used over and over and over. And who knows how many people have been impacted in a positive way because of you simply getting this off your chest and getting it onto paper. It's, it's crazy. And you bring up a great point there. I'll, I'll share something. I'm, my wife's Catholic. I'm Jewish, as I mentioned. I'm not an overly religious person. My, mm -hmm. my wife's much more religious than I am. And she has a similar thought process of what you just said there. And one day, I'm getting ready to go to one of my tests. And my tests first started every three months. Then it was every four months, five months. Now we're every six months. But the reality, like I mentioned earlier, is it's probably going to grow back at some point. Mm -hmm. I don't think about it. I don't let it control my life. I control my life. So we're laying in bed that morning before we're going to go do a test. And she says, I want you to do me a favor. I said, yeah, what's up? She goes, I want you to pray to all your grandparents. All my grandparents are passed. She goes, I want you to pray to them that everything will be great. I go right back. That, that's your thing. I'm totally good with it. I love it. I think it's great, but that's not my thing. She goes, I want you to do me one favor. Close your eyes and ask each one of them to take care of you so you'll be here for your children. I go, okay. I've no, I'd be as honest. I, I was like, I'm just going to do this to make you happy. I don't really want to do it. And I closed my eyes and just tears started pouring out of my eyes. Hmm. She's kind of leaning over me like this. And I open them up. She goes, pretty amazing, huh? Rather than being cold and resistant to change and taking on something new that could be plausible or possible, 
because of this, I went the other way. Hmm. And I don't, I wouldn't have done that in the past. I have no problem telling you that, hmm. but I'll, I'll never forget that as long as I live. I'll, I'll never forget the emotion that hit me, whether it's real, not real, it doesn't matter to me. Hmm. It was something that made complete sense that I never understood before. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, there's certainly a lot there. So I want to cycle back to something not as serious, not as serious at all. But yeah. I have this question because Please. you guys had a uh, – there's two things, actually. I was just going to ask you this question in closing as we, as we kind of wind down the, the show for today. So when you're in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. what would you say is the, is the best Philly place in Philadelphia? So that's a great question. Because you, you, your story goes through Philadelphia. So I, I love Philadelphia. Connected with Philly. Love it. I am, I'm a Giants fan mm-hmm. who lives in Philadelphia. When you live in the city of Philadelphia, it took me two weeks to realize this ain't good, man. This is not good. Philly is an amazing town. I lived in the area called Old City where they made the, uh, where the uh, Betsy Rossen at the flag, the Liberty Bell, it's mm-hmm. cobblestone streets. I loved every, the, within a week of me being there, I knew I'm never going back to North Jersey again. I'm like, this is it. And Philly is home to me. One, I love the people. Mm-hmm. I love the chip on the shoulder. I mean, there's a, there's a similarity between New York, Philly, and Boston, except Philly and Boston are perceived as the, redheaded stepchild compared to them. And I don't mean that in a negative way. So I love the chip on the shoulder. My favorite thing about Philly, and there's a guy who travels all over the place. I will go. It is the best food in the country. I will put that anywhere. I don't care where you are. The restaurants, when we got married, we went down into South Philly and did our rehearsal dinner down at Dante and Luigi's there where you got the old lady spinning the, the sauce and whatnot the food, the Italian market. And then you got the amazing restaurants and Rittenhouse and all the, and all the other areas. Um, I will put the, I don't care where I travel to. I can't wait to get home and eat. <laughs> Love that. Love that. So the second, the second thing I would say is this. Uh, so a couple of years ago, uh, my, our family, we actually went up to Philly and as any tourist does, he runs up the Rocky steps I took wedding pictures on the Rocky Steps. Oh, I know. I'm right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I really, I, it was heartwarming, actually. I was like, it's awesome. You know, it's like, yeah, we're tourists. We run up there, you know, you run up the steps, throw your hands up, get a pic, and all that. And I was like, you know what? Even the locals do it. So that's a good thing. Oh, yeah. Like, listen, <laughs> we love Rocky, man. I mean, any, any way you're, you're going to cut it, it's funny how you're, you're bringing this up because people always ask me, you grew up in Northern Jersey, and I'm, like, I'm a Philly guy, man. That's, that's the way it is. I've, I've lived in Philly for, you know, more than half my life. I mean, and and I love every second of it. I will tell you one of the great things about that city is the historic areas of all, like I was mentioning the cobblestone streets, Elfred Sally, all the, it's an amazing place to walk around. There's an infectious atmosphere down there that will, that will never go away. All right. Now everybody who's listening has to visit Philly. So I just wanted to put that in there. A little (laughs) light touch at the end of the podcast. Matt, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it was absolutely my honor. And thank you so much. And anything we could ever do to help anybody or, or provide anything to give them some semblance of positivity or during difficult times, it's an absolute honor to be here, John. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the New Kind of Man podcast. You've been given some good manly encouragement, and now it's your turn, gentlemen. If you found today's content helpful, go tell a friend and please leave us a review. And consider hitting that subscribe button so you don't miss a single episode. 
Now it's time for all of us to do what Theodore Roosevelt said, create, act, get action, do things, be sane, don't fritter away your time, take a place wherever you are and be somebody, get action.